This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, this is our fourth, maybe? Yep, fourth lecture in our summer lecture series. And I just want to give a heads up that next week, um, Ben, our very own Ben Kais, will be giving a preview of the forthcoming Ordinary Time album called Already Yours. So that'll be a treat to get a preview of that next week. I think the album title has changed since I wrote that. So. Okay. Uh, to be <laughs> to be determined. Come come next week. Maybe you'll hear what the new title is. Um, <laughs> all right. But tonight you're here for part four of a series I've been doing on the baptized imagination, and this one's called "Take Heed How You See." So as you, as we begin tonight, I want to just. Um, assure you that if you weren't here for parts one, two, and three, that's fine. You'll be okay. Um, I also want to give you a heads up that if you were hoping for a, a very linear lecture outline, like some of some of my colleagues will put up here, you're not going to get that. Um, as I've been doing this series, the, the topic of the imagination, at least, at least in my hands, has really resisted linear outlines. The first one was structured as a ramble through the woods. The second two lectures, I, I used the metaphor of theater a lot. And then this one, my kind of controlling image is uh, that of a treasure hunt, or maybe of hide-and-seek. Um, maybe even if, if you want to go there, a whodunit. Um, and so along the way, we'll find some clues. We'll see some clues to a couple of key questions that will hopefully hopefully sketch out a map for us to kind of do something with at the end. So the last the last lecture, um, I ended by describing the Christian life as one in which we inhabit what I called God's great, big, true story. And we inhabit it more and more. We get the story into us. Sorry, we get into the story and get the story into us. That was kind of language that I used. And as we do that, this is what I argued in that lecture, as we do that, free spontaneous activity, rather than just formal obedience to power, is possible. And I also said at the end of that lecture that the opposite of formal obedience to power, you can go back to that lecture on our podcast if this is very confusing, um, formal obedience to power, the opposite of that is not choose your own adventure. Rather, it means being characterized by God's great big, true story, and the God who's writing that story, yeah, being characterized by that, and then being set free to choose the good in response to God's love. We are set free to be virtuous, to be virtuosos, to be artists in living. So some of the language that I use at the end of that 
that lecture. And I want to start here with the scripture that I quoted right at the end uh, of the last one. It was 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, in which Peter is quoting Psalm 34. He says this, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. This time I want to kind of focus right at the end of that verse. Um, Whoever, well, the beginning, it says whoever would see good days, whoever wants to see good days must seek peace and pursue it. Notice that language of seeing um, and especially seeking. So this is sort of the theme of this lecture, um, seeing and perceiving, especially as it relates to seeking. And I want to argue that though obedience to the story of God is not choose your own adventure, there still is an adventure. Seek peace and pursue it implies that peace is not immediately present, just kind of given. Um, It's not something you necessarily can easily catch. To seek is to look for something that is hidden or hiding. To pursue is to chase after something that maybe... Maybe doesn't want to be caught. So when Peter says, turn from evil towards good, he's also calling us to turn from evil towards an adventure, towards a quest, maybe, maybe even a hunt. So in this lecture, we're going to be asking and attempting to answer two questions related to this idea of a quest. First, what kind of seeing does this search, does this pursuit require? What kind of seeing? And second, what are we trying to find out? What are we searching for? What are we looking for? So to get into this, I just want to start with with my title, which is Take Heed How You See. And I think a discussion of the sense of sight is inevitable when you're talking about the imagination. I'm surprised it's taken me this long to to get here. Um, The imagination, this is the definition I've been working with, um, is the faculty that gives form to thought, form that is accessible to our senses. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Imagination is the faculty that gives form to thought, a form that is accessible to our senses. Um, but it is called the imagination, image a nation. <laughs> so, so visual images are usually immediately what comes to mind, what we picture. We call the, we think of the imagination as our ability to picture things in our mind. We talk about our mind's eye. That's our imagination. Um, so this title, take heed how you see is an adaptation of Jesus's words in Luke 8, where he says, take heed how you hear. That's in the, in the King James version, maybe in other versions that you're more familiar with. Consider carefully how you hear. And so that's what we're going to be considering. How should we see? How, how do we see? How should we see? So Jesus says, take heed how you hear right after he tells the parable of the sower, a very familiar parable that is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, But what I think is really interesting is that uh, both Luke 
and Mark have Jesus say something like, take heed how you hear, um, at the end of the parable. But there's a one-word difference between Luke's version and Mark's version. Mark says, take heed what you hear. And I'm sure Mark has a very particular reason that I've not studied for why he chose that word. But I chose to use Luke's phrasing very intentionally. Um, I think when we think about seeing, very often we emphasize what we see. That just sort of makes sense. Um, Think about, I don't know if any of you, any of the rest of you grew up with the Sunday school song, Oh, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See. You know that song? Be Careful Little Eyes What You See? Yeah. Um, And of course, uh, there are lots and lots of things that are not edifying to look at, that are really destructive to look at, actually. And we're super aware of this. I think we live in a very visual culture. We're constantly bombarded with images. And we're really aware of opening ourselves up to bad influences through visual media. I think that's something that we think about quite a lot. Um, either either those, that, that visual media might lead us into um, harmful fantasies. Um, if you go back to lecture one, I talked about the dis- difference between fantasy and imagination. Um, can lead us towards addiction. Some of the, the videos and things, they're designed to be addictive to keep you watching. Um, That's the whole business model. Um, They can lead us towards idolatry. And the Bible talks a lot about this, warnings about what you see. In 1 John, we get this warning against the lust of the eyes, right? And Jesus himself comes down really strong, really strong on this. I mean, Jesus is the one who taught that looking with lust is just as sinful as adultery, is the act of adultery. And Jesus also said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter heaven with only one eye or no eyes. Um, And I think even though it's, it's maybe the most obvious, the most obvious connection between looking and sexual sin is maybe the most obvious connection. Covetousness and greed and selfish ambition and vanity, all of those other sins can come, start with, Looking and seeing. I think after after the sins of our mouths, the sins of our eyes kind of top the lists, sin lists in the Bible. And so the, the little song, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See, seems to teach that the solution to the sins of our eyes is to guard our eyes, right? To like maybe put blinders on like you'd put on a horse to keep them from getting distracted by things that are around them. Um, and while, while I think that there are legitimate guards we need to put on what we choose to look at, very real important choices to make there, I want to push back a little bit against this idea that the only solution to sinful seeing is closing our eyes or narrowing the field of our sight. Following the song... <laughs> leaves us with a very limited vision and I think with a limited vision of vision as well. Prohibition by itself, saying don't do this by itself, tends to result very often in two extremes that I think are opposed opposed to this vision of the baptized imagination that I've been trying to think about. And those two extremes that prohibition alone tends towards are these, rebellion and legalism. 
The vision of the baptized imagination, in contrast, is a vision of obedience and freedom. Um, Which, if that leaves you thinking, well, aren't you just talking about the Christian life? (laughs) Yes, I am just talking about the Christian life, but there's no just about it. (laughs) I am talking about the Christian life and and that, and I, I strongly believe that the imagination is deeply connected with all of the Christian life. But we aren't left with prohibition alone. Um, if we look just about just about anywhere in the Bible, there aren't just no's, there are also yeses. There's not just don't do this, there's also do these things. Even in the first Peter passage that I just quoted, there's turning away from, turn from evil, and just be neutral. No, turn from evil and do good. There's a positive command as well as the prohibition. And I think... Also, throughout the Bible, we see an emphasis not just on doing or not doing certain actions, but a strong emphasis on the heart, right? On our motives, on the internal attitudes, all of these other more complicated things. Um, So I think from all of that, we can say that Jesus isn't simply concerned with what we see. He's also concerned with how we see. And I think when we when we complicate the question of seeing by adding the how to the what, we really get back into the world of the imagination. So for this for this lecture, I'm I've um, I've referenced this a lot, but I'm especially going to be relying on an essay by George MacDonald, um, a Victorian writer who was extremely influential on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and many others. Um, and he wrote this uh, this essay called Imagination, Its Functions, and Culture. And by culture, he means cultivation. Um, and I'd, I'd refer that to you. Like, read the whole thing. I'm going to be quoting from it quite a lot, but read the whole thing. Uh, if you have a chance, it's public domain on the Internet, easily available. Um, well, worth, well worth your time. But he talks about how um, he addresses... Uh, very particularly concerned parents who are very worried, especially about their daughters, but about all of their children, about getting too imaginative, and that would be bad. Um, so I'm not gonna, they're just going to be floating off in la-la land. Um, so he addresses them very particularly with the language of seeing. So here's a quotation uh, from George MacDonald. He says, If she, your daughter, be not occupied with the beautiful, she will be occupied by the pleasant. That which goes not out to worship will remain at home to be sensual. Seek not that your sons and your daughters should not see visions, should not dream dreams. Seek that they should see true visions, that they should dream noble dreams. Seek not that your children be content with the pleasant toys of fantasy, but rather that they embark on imagination's quest for the true and the good and the beautiful. Seek not that they turn inward to be amused, but that they turn outward to worship. Seek not that they see less, but that they see more. Um, In Matthew 6, as uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, oops, where are we? Where are we at here? There we go. It says this. He says, um, 
The eye is the lamp of the body. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So he starts with saying the eye is the lamp of the body. And I think that's just pretty intuitive metaphor for us right off the bat. The basic idea is the eye is the way that light gets into you. Um, light comes into the body through our eyes. But I think the metaphor here is, is working more deeply than that. Um, a lamp in a window, for example, will shed light outside the window as well as inside the room, right? So it shines light outward as well as inward. And there's there's an ancient idea in a lot of literature around the world, goes back really far, um, this idea that eyes don't just take in light, but they also shed light out. Um, so if you've read any medieval poetry, the poets will talk about especially the beloved's eyes shine rays, have rays out of them. Um, there's beams from someone's eyes. Um, even even in other in the East in Hinduism, uh, there's this idea that the idol, the eyes of the idol, have this sort of power to shine blessing out on the people who look, who make eye contact essentially with the with the eyes of the idol. Um, or, or a revered person could also shine light or shine a blessing on someone from their eyes. So there's, it's a, it's kind of quite prevalent idea um, that not just taking eyes don't just take in light; they also can shed it out. And even in the Old Testament, we sort of get this idea when we, when the Bible talks about like the light of someone's face being turned towards someone, especially God's face, the light of God's face. Um, and I don't know, I couldn't I couldn't find a commentator that would say whether or not Jesus was directly referencing this poetic idea or not. Um, but I think that idea does say something quite important about perception. We know, we know that scientifically that's not how eyes work. Otherwise we could see in the dark, which would be awesome, but we can't. Um, our eyes take in light and that's how we see. Um, but I think this, yeah, this idea that of eyes shedding out light says something about perception. How we see not only determines what light gets into us, but it also sheds light on what we are looking at. We talk about this when we talk about bias or lenses that people see the world through, right? Our eyes aren't just one-way light receptors. They're not just optical organs. They're also organs of perception. We biologically see from the outside in, but we also what we perceive with the eyes of our hearts, with our imaginations, with our, which is our interpretive faculty. And I think this two two way vision idea is reinforced by the next part of the verse. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. And this is the I'm, I'm using the NIV here, um, but this word rendered good is a more complicated word than just our English word for good. Um, other translations might render it as healthy or as single. If your eye is single. Um, and in, in the Greek and elsewhere even in, in the New Testament, it has connotations of generosity. And in contrast, the word that's rendered here is as bad, could be evil or unhealthy. Um, it has connotations of stinginess. So if we have that in mind, 
we get this picture of if, if your eye is generous, giving something out, right? Shedding light outward, then your whole inward self will be full of light. A generous perspective isn't just a kindness to those you see. It means light for you, too. And I think this is a really important clue to taking heed to how we see. To see well is to see generously. All right, we're going to move on to another part of Matthew's Gospel. And you should have gotten a a little handout just to help you, because I'm going to be kind of covering a lot of ground. So just to kind of help you trace where I am if it gets confusing. Um, Because like I said at the very beginning, we're we're on a treasure hunt here. And this word treasure is actually really important. This verse in Matthew 6, right before this, does anyone know what Jesus says? He says, where your treasure is, there your, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Did I say that the wrong way? You know what it says. Um, he talks about treasure right before he talks about his out, about eyes here. And this connection, this, these parallel threads of treasure and how we see actually continue later in Matthew. So in Matthew 12 and 13, there's this long and very significant exchange that happens, especially between Jesus and the Pharisees, but then also his disciples and other people are involved. Um, and this exchange, I think if we trace these threads, we'll see that it's really about seeing and perceiving. And there's a lot, there's obviously also lots of other things going on here, and I won't get into all the details. We can definitely talk more about it in the discussion. Um, but, yeah, so... Have that handout with you just in case you've got got more questions. But we're going to start by looking at... I'm going to just give a summary and then kind of give some interpretation after. So in verse 22 of Matthew 12, Jesus, um, the people bring Jesus a demonized man. So it's clear that he has a demon. And then it says that he's blind and mute. This is important. He can't see or speak. And Jesus heals him. And Matthew makes sure that we get what this means. Jesus heals him. It means so that he could both talk and see. Just to make it clear, blind man can now see. Uh, Mute man can now speak. And the people who witness this miracle start asking, could this man be the Messiah? Could Jesus be the Messiah? Um, But when they start asking this, the Pharisees, in contrast, say... No. They attribute this healing to the prince of demons, Beelzebub. They say it's by the prince of demons that this man drives out demons. And then Jesus responds to this. And it's a a much, uh, a long dialogue um, where Jesus gives his famous teaching about a house divided against itself, cannot stand, this is probably familiar. Um, And also where he warns very strongly against blaspheming the Holy Spirit, against saying things against the Holy Spirit. And he says that that's an unforgivable sin. Basically, you can say anything against the Son of Man, and you could be forgiven, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. It's really intense. And then, right after that, Jesus says this in verse 33, and uh, this is really key for the threads that we're tracing here. Jesus says this, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. 
or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Immediately after this, the Pharisees ask to see a miraculous sign, even though they literally just saw a guy be healed from a demon. But Jesus does not give them a sign. He says, you can have the sign of Jonah. All right, so that's a, like a really quick outline of chapter 12. Then this, this discourse continues into chapter 13, um, and that's where we get, oops, that's where we get uh, first Matthew's version of the parable of the sower that I talked about earlier. Um, or maybe maybe better titled the parable of the soils. And if you remember, this is about a sower sowing seed and how the soils respond. Um, and this parable is, is ultimately about how people respond when they hear the word of God. Um, but there's also a long discussion in the middle of this parable and interpretation of the parable where the disciples have a discussion with Jesus about what's, what's with all these parables, Jesus. So they ask him, why do you speak in parables to these people? And this is what Jesus says. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And then to reinforce his point, uh, Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become, this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And then in contrast, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Then there are a whole bunch more parables that we're not going to talk about. And then um, at the very end, Jesus asks his disciples, do you understand what's going on with all these parables? Do you understand all the parables? And they say, yes. And so Jesus says this. When they say yes, this is a curious response. He says, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And this ties back into the beginning. If you look on your outline, you can see it all on one sheet. Right back to the beginning of the passage where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, who are the actual teachers of the law, and telling them that the good man brings good treasures out of his storeroom, and the evil man brings evil treasures out of his storeroom. So are you seeing Are you seeing these threads that I'm tracing? Um, this idea of the heart, the inter, inside part of a person, the core of a person as like storehouse or a treasury... And we know that the way a treasury works is treasure gets put in and taken out. Apparently, uh, Jesus is talking about the owner of the house bringing treasures out of the storeroom as well as putting it in. So seeing and perceiving, hearing as well, is tied up into this 
in these passages are both taking in and giving out. There's a sort of exchange happening. Right after Jesus tells the parable of the soils, he says something that is probably familiar. He says this at different points throughout the Gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think he could have also said, he who has eyes to see, let him see. Um, earlier when he says, out of the overflow of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think he could have also said, out of the overflow of the heart, the eyes perceive. All of these senses are, are deeply interconnected. I think, too, I want to also point out with this middle middle verse that I highlighted in, uh, in verse 11 and 12, that Jesus is also getting at this idea of treasure implicitly when he says, whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I think this, this makes sense just if we think about this literally. If you're interested in something, if you start, if, if something is drawn, to, like if your attention is drawn to something, you start seeing it everywhere. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Um, but if you're interested in something, maybe even just a little bit, say like Ben, you're interested in birds, and you start paying attention to birds, and maybe you learn a little bit more, like how to recognize different birds or where they, where you might see certain birds, then you'll start seeing more birds. Um, And the more birds you'll see, the more you'll want to find out about what you're seeing and what you're hearing. It's this sort of recursive experience that the more you have, the more you're given. The good man has good treasure in his treasury, and he's given and he finds more treasure. Whoever sees well will see more and will see in abundance. He who seeks will find. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. This idea is all over the place in Jesus' teaching. So in contrast to the Pharisees, the disciples, even with their mustard seed-sized faith, they are among those who have to whom more is given. They are blessed because their eyes see and their ears hear. They see a miracle, and they say, could this be the Messiah? Unlike the Pharisees, who are actually in really grave danger, because they've observed the obvious work of the Spirit of God, this recreative work that only Creator God can do, that Jesus just displayed in healing this man, and they've refused to see it as the work of God. They said, this is the work of Satan. The disciples are seeing with generous, healthy eyes, and they're going to see more and more. And the Pharisees are seeing with stingy, sickly eyes, and they'll see less and less until in chapter 23, just before they arrest Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers, uh, the chief priests, just before they arrest Jesus, Jesus will denounce them and call them many times in one passage, blind fools, can't see at all. So treasure hunters are the people who find treasure. I mean, someone might find treasure by chance. Those are the fun stories that we like. But but treasure hunters are the ones who have a full treasury. A collector is the person who has the collection. Um, any of us can find a quarter on the sidewalk. Um, there's a difference, though, between someone who finds a quarter on the sidewalk and someone like 
uh, our colleague at the Dutch Labrie, who searches the apple orchards around the Dutch Labrie with a metal detector, and has a collection of medieval coins that he has found. Um, it's a little different. <laughs> um, and even and even serendipity, which is finding what you weren't looking for, is something that you can grow in, because serendipity is a way of seeing. It's a generous a generous way of seeing, an open-hearted way of seeing, an open-eyed way of following a trail. It's a way that is ready to see, that's expectant. In the case of, of what we've read in the Gospel, it's expectant to see the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, whoops, not that yet, sorry. George MacDonald describes the imagination's purpose like this. He says the purpose of the imagination is, is something, he uses the language of finding out, searching, and seeking. He says that the, the whole duty of the imagination is to follow and find out the divine imagination in whose image it was made. To follow and find out the divine imagination in whose image it was made. Those two verbs, following and finding out, are really important. I'm going to keep coming back to that. And he goes on to say this. He says, he's made this whole argument about that this is what the imagination is for. And then he says, from what we have now advanced, will it not then appear that, on the whole, the name given by our Norman ancestors is more fitting for the man who moves in these regions, the regions of the imagination, than the name given by the Greeks? Is not the poet the maker, a less suitable name for him than the trouver, the finder? At least, must not the faculty that finds precede the faculty that utters? Okay, I know this is a lot of Victorian going on here, but um, <laughs> we'll translate. Um, so you may, you may remember, if you were here for part two of this series, that the word poet comes from the Greek word for maker, and a poem is literally a made thing. Um, in medieval France, however, a trouvère was a poet-composer. We're maybe more familiar with like a troubadour. Um, they were sort of related. Um, Trouvères were sort of related. But a trouvère, as MacDonald points out, that word comes from the old French t- for to find. So this kind of poet was defined not so much as a maker as much as a finder. What a relief for those of us, those among us who maybe don't feel like you're creative at all, um, much less a poet. Though some people who thought they were not creative or poets at all did write poems for me just a couple weeks ago. We did it together, and they were good poems too. Um, so, but this is this is a relief, and this is also really helpful. Making is not the only work of the imagination. To be an artist in living. You do not have to begin as a poet. You may begin, you actually must begin. Even artists must begin as a finder. MacDonald says it, asks that question. He says, must not the faculty that finds precede that, the faculty that utters? And, and MacDonald actually gives a much longer argument that only God is actually a poet, 
that's a big part of his essay. Um, only God can truly make something. And human creativity, human imaginative work is following and finding out the works of God. Humans are the trouvers, the finders. And I think throughout his argument, and, and here as well, what McDonald is saying is that there's no, or what I interpret from it anyways, he's not really saying this, but what I get from this is that there's no excuse for a Christian who refuses to be curious or who neglects to cultivate this generous, generative, imaginative way of seeing. We all have imaginations, even if yours is a little rusty. And the purpose of the imagination is to find and follow the divine imagination that made it, in whose image it's made. Um, Another thing that McDonald says about the purpose of the imagination, which I think is really relevant here, is this. He says, the purpose of the imagination is harmony with the divine order of things. Therefore, the first and essential means for imagination's culture, that is cultivation, must be an ordering of our life towards harmony with its ideal in the mind of God. As he that is willing to do the will of the Father shall know of the doctrine, so we doubt not that he that he that will to do the will of the poet shall behold the beautiful. The purpose of the imagination is Harmony, we might say, integration with the divine order of things. Reintegration with the way that God made things to be after all of the disintegration we've experienced in all of our faculties, including our imagination, because of the fall. God's redemptive work is towards reintegration, towards harmony with the way he made things to be. Later on, uh, McDonald's just maybe this is clarifying. He says, "For all is God's, and the man who is growing into harmony with God's will is growing into harmony with himself." So even if you won't be an artist or a poet in the conventional sense, um, this is what George McDonald says for all of us. He says it is necessary that all should understand and imagine the good, that all should begin at least to follow and find out God. We are the finders. We are on a treasure hunt to follow and find out God. We've talked a little bit about how we see, seeing generously and generatively and imaginatively. Now we're going to turn towards that second question. What are we looking for? Well, the answer's already up here. (laughs) We're on a treasure hunt to follow and find out God. Here is the object of our questing and our treasure hunting. This is the mystery that we seek to solve, the mystery of knowing God. So in in the early days of Christianity, some of the predominant heresies that were threatening the church, um, 
and I, I would say not just in the early days of Christianity, all the way up to the present day. <laughs> Some of the most predominant heresies are springing out of Gnosticism and these weird mystery religions that were huge in the Roman Empire um, at the time of Jesus and the apostles. And these, these cults had lots of different things going on, um, but two of the really common themes were first that the goal of religion was to be initiated through various cultic practices into higher and higher levels of secret knowledge about spiritual realities, kind of like masons or something, um, to be, yeah, to do certain things so that you get into a higher level of this secret knowledge. And the second thing that was really common among all of these was this idea that the spirit and the body or the physical were totally antithetical to each other. Spirit was good and matter, physical reality, the body, was bad. Um, So God, as the supreme spirit, or whatever gods were involved, could have nothing to do with corrupt, gross physical existence, which is partly why you had to do these different practices to sort of try and bridge that gap. There was lots of other things going on um, with all of those. But we get hints um, that in the book of Colossians, which we're going to turn to now, that Paul was probably addressing some of these Gnostic mystery heresies um, when he wrote this letter. Um, but I think this has this is relevant to us because the idea of Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, to know, um, knowledge, secret knowledge, and we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to know, what we're, what we're trying to find out. We're trying to find out a mystery. This is about mysteries. Okay, this is connected. Um, but what, what does Paul have to say in Colossians about this? Um, in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul explains why he's writing this letter um, to these believers in Colossae that he probably hasn't met in person. It sounds like he hasn't met them in person yet. Um, and he says his goal in writing is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So it's like it's like Paul is saying... Yes, there, there is wisdom and knowledge to be had. There is a mystery. He calls it the mystery of God. But it's not this super secret knowledge that these Gnostic cult leaders are talking about. The mystery of God is Christ. And you can know him. The object of your searching is attainable. You can have the full riches of complete understanding complete understanding. This is incredible. Not just knowing intellectually or maybe magically, mystically in some cultic way, but completely with your whole heart, your whole self. And this this understanding, these full riches of complete understanding aren't some dark secret that you get individually by making your way into some inner ring of these initiated people. It's found in the context of love and unity with all of God's people, united in love, it says at the beginning, and union with Jesus himself. The rest of the rest of Colossians really points to that. 
So Paul continues warning them about these empty philosophies that are being, you know, promoted, apparently in Colossae. Um, Gives a lot more warnings in chapter 2 about that and contrasts it with life in Christ. And he talks very particularly about baptism. We always get around to baptism in these lectures because we're talking about the baptized imagination. Um, Here Paul talks about, uh, about, not about imagination, baptism. And he says... um, That believers have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. All right. Yeah, he goes on. He says, because, basically says, um, I'm just summarizing here, but because we share in Christ's death and resurrection, we are now free from what verse 14 of chapter 2 calls the charge of our legal indebtedness. Jesus has nailed it to the cross. It's very powerful. Um, promise there and so following this because we're free from this charge of legal legal indebtedness Paul encourages the believers to guard their freedom but I want you to just pay attention to some of the ways that he's talking about this I mean we've already got this idea of treasures mysteries this is just a thread that we're continuing to follow So in Colossians 2, 16 through 19, I'm going to read it from up here. He says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their fleshly mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. There's a lot in there. So the rules from the Old Covenant, that's what was nailed to the cross, the chart of our legal indebtedness, They are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. And this word for reality, some some translations maybe have it as substance, is the same as the word down here for body. The laws of the old covenant are the shadow. Jesus is the body that casts the shadow. So if you just generally are a detective or a finder of things, you might learn to really pay attention to shadows. They're really important clues. But the shadow is not what you're looking for. You're looking for the body that casts the shadow. The substance is found in Christ. So he's saying some people who fancy themselves seers, they maybe are proud of these hidden secrets they claim to have glimpsed. Paul is saying they've missed the body that matters. They're actually not connected to the body, to the rest of the body, or to the head, who he says or has said earlier already, is Christ. It's it's interesting to me that Paul really seems to be like driving in this very bodily imagery to to people who think that the body doesn't matter, ligaments and sinews. Like, let's really just talk about bodily things. Anyway, that's not the point. That was a sidetrack. Um, <laughs> so. The mystery of God that Paul already referenced is not secret knowledge possessed by an inner ring. The mystery of God is, uh, Colossians chapter 1 has already said it. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's where the reality, the substance, the body is to be found. And that's where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. One last piece from Colossians here. In chapter 3, right after all this uh, that I've been saying from from chapter 2, in chapter 3, Paul says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, just like he talked about, symbolized in our baptism. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This phrase, set your hearts on things above, it's kind of a curious rendering by the NIV, can also be translated, keep seeking. And it involves a Greek word that means to seek in order to find something. Keep searching out. But it also means demand or crave. Keep looking for, keep searching after, keep desiring the things above. And it's distinct from from the second one, set your mind on things above, which means just that, direct your minds towards. But with this idea of seeking and striving for the things above, hunt for, pursue, search, find, look for and see. Um, and I don't, I don't think Paul is talking here about just thinking heavenly thoughts all the time, like head in the clouds kind of thing. But like I'm only thinking about holy things, like about angels strumming their harps on clouds or something. I think he's saying, look for and seek this reality, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the reality of this mystery, Christ seated at the right hand of God, this reality that is not always immediately, I don't know about you, for me, it's not always immediately present to my senses, the reality that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God um, and my life is hidden in him. That's not usually what I'm experiencing. But that's what I'm called to keep looking for, seeking for. Seek that perspective of Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the vision of this reality because our life is hidden in Christ. Uh, In his commentary on this passage, F.F. Bruce says, the believer's whole outlook must be characterized by their living bond with the ascended Christ. Look out from that vantage point, from that viewpoint. So Christ in you, you in Christ. This is the mystery. Spoiler alert, we found we found the mystery. Here it is. Um But there are still things to be found out. There's still treasure to be pursued. There's knowledge to be gained. If God's word and God's world are so vast that we can spend our whole lives exploring them and not run out of things to explore, how much more God himself who made, who spoke his word and made his world. And the the idea of infinite things to explore might... um, 
be daunting. It might make us think of, you know, Sisyphus rolling his boulder up the hill just to have it roll back down. Uh, But that's not the kind of quest we're on. We're on the kind of quest that calls us always further up and further in. And that's the good work that our imaginations were designed for. To him, to her who has, more will be given. And he or she will have in abundance. X marks this spot. This spot that was marked with our baptism. The death and resurrection and eternal life of Christ and our life in him. This reality. Dig here. Because even if it's maybe an open secret or a solved mystery, there are still vast depths to be plumbed, to be found out. That's the object of our quest. So what does this look like in normal life? (laughs) So... George MacDonald has said, said to follow and find out the divine imagination in whose image we were made. Here's how George says we should do this. He says to do this, to follow and find out the divine imagination, the man must watch its, the divine imagination's, signs, its manifestations. He must contemplate what the Hebrew poets call the works of his hands. The Victorian poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she wrote these lines as part of a much, much longer poem, a much longer section that's about exactly this, the imagination's work. Um, But I'm just going to read a little section from this poem. And truly, I reiterate, nothing's small. No lily muffled hum of a summer bee, but finds some coupling with the spinning stars. No pebble at your foot but proves a sphere. No chaffinch but implies the cherubim. And, glancing on my own thin veined wrist, in such a little tremor of the blood, the whole strong clamor of a vehement soul doth utter itself distinct. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. (laughs) Who are they that see? Yes, they, they are artists and poets, people like Elizabeth Barrett Browning. But what MacDonald is calling for and what, what Barrett Browning is calling for, I think, is really the duty of every Christian, the joy of every Christian, to begin, at least, to understand and imagine the good, to follow and find out God. If we can all examine and contemplate the works of God's hands, we can all dig into God's word and God's world with the eyes of our imagination generously open. So we've done some digging into God's word already together tonight. And I want to give just a couple of examples of people looking around at God's world, the works of his hands, with with imaginative vision. So the first one um, I have is maybe kind of one level of this kind of seeing, observing something in nature and then drawing a parable from it. This is how Jesus looked at nature. Um, drawing out some kind of broader meaning or a personal meaning or some kind of meaning. 
Um, and, and pastors and teachers do this all the time when they come up with illustrations, sermon illustrations. Um, so uh, Lilius Trotter was a Victorian painter and a missionary. Um, and I couldn't find I couldn't find a picture of one of her paintings without like a quote from her on top of it. But you're, you'll get a quote for free. It's not really one that I wanted to draw your attention to. Um, but this is one of her paintings. Um, the screen doesn't do it justice. Her work is really beautiful. She was very gifted at observing, uh, really gifted with color. Um, and I th- and she wrote a lot. And she, I think she thought actually in the language of parable. I don't think she could think any other way. Um, but here's an example of something that she wrote. The daisies have been talking again. Somewhere long ago, I saw that the reason they spread out their leaves flat on the ground, so flat the scythe does not touch them, is because the flowers stretch out their little hands, as it were, to keep back the blades of grass that would shut out the sunlight. They speak so of the need of deliberately holding back everything that would crowd our souls and stifle the freedom of God's light and air. She's looking at daisies. She's noticed for a long time that their leaves push the grass away. And she says, they speak to me. They've spoken to me about the need of holding back everything that would crowd, crowd my soul. And she, she has lots of other things. She writes about being comforted by a bee. Um, she talks about a cherry tree preaching her a sermon. Um, a dandelion teaching her how to spend her life on behalf of others. All lessons from carefully observing and continually seeking, even as she looked at nature, the things above, the perspective of an earth crammed with heaven. Here's maybe another level, moving from the parable to the poem. Um, This is a poem by Lilius Trotter's contemporary, the more well-known missionary and writer, Amy Carmichael. This poem is called, Where Dwellest Thou? Oh, what is it that wanders in the wind? And what is it that whispers in the wood? What is the river singing to the sun? Why this vague pain in every charmed sense, this yearning keen suspense? Often I've seen a garment floating by, fringe of it only. Golden brown it lay on the ripe grasses, fern green on the ferns. And in the wood, like bluebells misty blue, whitened with mountain dew. I laid me low among the mountain grass. I laid me low among the river fern. I hid me in the wood and tried to hold the lovely wonder of it as it passed and tried to hold it fast. It slipped like sunshine through my eager hands. See, they are dusted as with pollen dust, soft dust of gold and soft the sense of touch. Soft as the south wind's sea-blown evening kiss. But I have only this. The dust of vanished gold upon my hands. This breath of wind blowing upon my hair. Stirring of something near, so near but far. Glimmering through colors, fleeting preciousness. 
the fringes of a dress. O wearer of that garment, if its hem hardly perceived can thrill us, what must thou, its weaver and its wearer, be to see? Master, where dwellest thou? O tell me now, where dwellest thou? The grasses turned their golden heads away, and shyer and more wistful stood the ferns. The little flowers looked up with puzzled eyes. Only the river, who is all my own, left me not quite alone, but mixed his music with my human cry, till somewhere from the half-withdrawing wood sound of familiar footsteps. Is it thou? Master, where dwellest thou? Oh, speak to me. And he said, Come and see. I think this is a really beautiful example of someone looking imaginatively at God's world and at God's word. I don't know if this refrain in here is familiar to you. If you read the King James Version, it probably is. Um, Where dwellest thou comes from uh, John chapter 1, where two of John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus, probably in versions we're more familiar with, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. All right, one, one last example. We're going to move now maybe from, we've moved from parable to poetry. Now we're going to move to an allegory, we could say. Um, from G.K. Chesterton's novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. I'm going to try and read from a part without giving away too many spoilers, but this might not work. Um, If you haven't read it, I highly recommend. Um, It's really worth a read. But the plot is essentially a series of chases. Um, As the reader follows a police detective named Gabriel Syme, who's trying to infiltrate and break up a ring of anarchists. This might sound like it's not. I just read this nice poem about, like, woods and ferns. A police detective trying to break up a ring of anarchists. And in one of the final scenes, a group of detectives have finally gotten the president of the anarchists, who is this giant, terrifying man who they only know by his code name, which is Sunday. Um, they finally gotten him on his own. And these detectives, through the course of the story, have experienced some wild escapades and this series of bizarre revelations, which has made them question everything that they thought they knew. So they finally cornered Sunday to ask him what it all means. We have no time for tomfoolery, said the secretary, breaking in. We have come to know what all this means. Who are you? What are you? Why did you get us all here? Do you know who and what we are? Are you a half-witted man playing the conspirator, or or are you a clever man playing the fool? Answer me, I tell you. Candidates, murmured Sunday, are only required to answer eight out of the 17 questions on the paper. As far as I can make out, you want me to tell you what I am and what you are and what this table is and what the council is and what this world is for all I know. Well, I will go so far as to rend the veil of one mystery. If you want to know what you are, you are a set of highly well-intentioned young jackasses. (laughs) And you, said Syme, what are you? I... What am I, roared the president, and he rose slowly to an incredible height, like some enormous wave about to arch above them and break. 
You want to know what I am, do you? Bull, you are a man of science. Grub in the roots of those trees and find out the truth about them. Sign, you are a poet. Stare at those morning clouds. But I tell you this, that you will have found out the truth of the last tree and the topmost cloud before the truth about me. You will understand the sea, and I shall still be a riddle. You shall know what the stars are and not know what I am. Since the beginning of the world, all men have hunted me like a wolf. Kings and sages and poets and lawgivers, all the churches and all the philosophies. But I have never been caught yet, and the skies will fall in the time I turn to bay. I have given them a good run, a good run for their money, and I will now. Then he leaps off the balcony that they've all been sitting on and takes off down the street. They all chase after him, and there follows this incredibly crazy chase across London in handsome cabs. There's an elephant that gets involved from the zoo. Uh, finally, Sunday gets on a hot air balloon. Oh, I forgot to change my picture. There he is. Um, and these detectives are still chasing after him. They've gotten out of the city. They're going through this um, these meadows following this hot air balloon. And it's been a long road. The balloon's not going that fast, so they're tramping along tramping along after this after this hot air balloon and they start talking about um what what's your experience of Sunday been how did you first see him they're trying to piece together who is this guy what's going on and they've all described kind of what they what they envisioned him as and finally it's Syme's turn the poet um and he says have you noticed an odd thing about all your descriptions Each man of you finds Sunday quite different, yet each man of you can only find one thing to compare him to, the universe itself. Bull finds him like the earth in spring, Gogol like the sun at noonday. The secretary is reminded of the shapeless protoplasm and the inspector of the carelessness of virgin forests. The professor says he is like a changing landscape. This is queer, but it is queerer still that I also have had my odd notion about the president And I also find that I think of Sunday as I think of the whole world. When I first saw Sunday, I saw only his back. And when I saw his back, I knew he was the worst man in the world. His neck and his shoulders were brutal, like those of some apish god. His head had a stoop that was hardly human, like the stoop of an ox. In fact, I had at once the revolting fancy that this was not a man at all, but a beast dressed up in men's clothes. And then the queer thing happened. I had seen his back from the street as he sat in the balcony. Then I entered the hotel and coming round on the other side of him saw his face in the sunlight. His face frightened me as it did everyone, but not because it was brutal, not because it was evil. On the contrary, it frightened me because it was so beautiful, because it was so good. Sign, exclaimed the secretary, are you ill? <laughs> It was like the face of some ancient archangel judging justly after heroic wars. There was laughter in the eyes and in the mouth, honor and sorrow. There was the same white hair, the same great gray clad shoulders that I had seen from behind. But when I saw him from behind, I was certain he was an animal. And when I saw him from in front, I knew he was a god. Then and again and always, that has been for me the mystery of Sunday. And it is also the mystery of the world. When I see the horrible back, I am sure the noble face is but a mask. When I see the face but for an instant, instant, I know the back is only a jest. 
Bad is so bad that we cannot but think good an accident. Good is so good that we feel certain that evil could be explained. But the whole came to a kind of crest yesterday when I raced Sunday for the cab and was just behind him all the way. I had time for one outrageous thought. I was suddenly possessed with the idea that the blind blank back of his head really was his face, an awful eyeless face staring at me. And I fancied that the figure running in front of me was really a figure running backwards and dancing as he ran. Horrible, said Dr. Bull, and shuddered. Horrible is not the word, said Syme. It was exactly the worst incident of my life. (laughs) And yet, ten minutes afterward, when he put his head out of the cab and made a grimace like a gargoyle, I knew that he was only like a father playing hide-and-seek with his children. It's a long game, said the secretary, and frowned at his broken boots. Listen to me, cried Syme with extraordinary emphasis. Shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? It is that we have only known the back of the world. We see everything from behind, and it looks brutal. That is not a tree, but the back of a tree. That is not a cloud, but the back of a cloud. Cannot you see that everything is stooping and hiding a face? If we could only get around in front. If it's true that the secret of the whole world is that we have only known the back of the world, then there's a lot to find out. There are lots of adventures to have in getting around the front. And this, my friends, is the work of the imagination, the imaginative work of seeing. So I want to wrap up now where, where we began, quoting from 1 Peter 3. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. I said at the beginning that to seek means to look for something that is hidden or hiding. To pursue is to run after something that maybe doesn't want to be caught. But the next verse shows us that we are not dealing in this search with a resistant quarry. The next verse says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Like the wearer of the garment in Amy Carmichael's poem who says, Come and see. Like Sunday who turns around to make sure the detectives are still following him. Who Syme likens to a father playing a game with his children. And who eventually, spoiler, welcomes the weary detectives to a feast in his house. Like those characters, the God whom we seek wants to be found. In fact, the God whom we seek is also seeking us back. I'm going to end with the, the way that George MacDonald ends his essay. The glory of God is to conceal a thing, but the glory of the king is to find it out, says Solomon. As if, remarks Bacon on the passage, according to the innocent play of children, the divine majesty took delight to hide his works, to the end to have them found out. And as if kings could not obtain a greater honor than to be God's playfellows in that game. That's where I'm going to stop. And we can turn to a time of discussion.
discussion and conversation. If you need to get going, I understand. You're welcome to take off now as well. But I'm also open to, to questions or comments. that God possesses um, out of which he created the world. Um, yeah. I don't know if you were here for part two of this series, but I talked a lot more about it there, and I'm trying to remember <laughs> if I said any more than, than just that answer, but, but in McDonald's work, okay. it's referring to God's imagination, yes. But being made in the image of God means that we are made to have not the complete imagination of God, but to be imaginative. Right, exactly, uh, yes. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I've, I've been rereading Dorothy Sayers' The Mind of the Maker, mm -hmm. and <laughs> I mean, I, I think that has a lot to say about, about what you've been talking about. Yeah. That, that we, are, we, are, we are makers because he, he made us. In right. his image, and mm -hmm. yeah, I, I get what what McDonald's was saying, but in a sense, we all have have this capacity to have an idea, <laughs> to bring it <laughs> into reality in some way mm -hmm. that it has. And there's this three part thing that the imagination does, you know, that yeah. brings something to life. Mm -hmm. So, so, so yes, it's God's imagination, but our imaginations, because we're made in the image of God, shares share something of that. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I think McDonald would say that too. He does argue that, um, yeah, very strongly that that idea of being made in the image of God. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. To that too. I was reading Psalm 36 this morning, and it's that there's a verse where it says, "In your light we see light." Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand what that meant, but I, I feel like this again. It's kind of yeah. the, it's only within that light that there is any light to be seen. And kind of, mm -hmm. I, it just makes more sense now in the context of like there is no light that I could just kind of see on my own. It's only mm -hmm. within the light that God provides. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good connection. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was intrigued by the, um, <coughs> the point you made about um, the poet being the you know, one who makes, you mm-hmm. know, uh, but the root of the word in French being trouvère, it's like the, the one who finds. Mm-hmm. And um, that, to me, is a, an interesting way to, to view art making in general. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we, we, we make things, we, we bring some degree of, origi- of ourselves to something, mm-hmm. we make something that wasn't there before, you know. Yeah. And yet, a lot of artists who who um, were describing their process talk about it like it's 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 not as if it's just an idea that's conceived abstractly and then executed. Mm-hmm. It's it's a process of working and exploring and discovering something. You know, yeah. Um, uh, that could only be just, could only be made through that process of, of exploration. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, I think when a lot of artists are honest, they, they describe it in that way. Although it's kind of it's a it's a little bit in um, uh, to me it's a it's a very helpful way of thinking about making art as a Christian is that you're always engaging with something that's already been made. I mean, you're always mm-hmm. even though we bring real creativity, real imagination because mm-hmm. we're image bearers of God. Like when you were saying, we're we're still. It's not as if we, we come upon a blank slate and create something from nothing, but we're always engaging with things that have already been made, and there's, and there's like rules of engagement that we can come up with. You know? mm-hmm. Wood behaves a certain way. You can only do so many things with a piece of wood before it breaks. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, and um, that's kind of the... We're, we're coming into contact with God's creation and how he's already made things, and it's only... Um, it's only by honoring that, like what's found, mm-hmm. that we can actually bring something new out of it. Which is, in a way, it's a totally Christian idea, but it's totally in conflict with sort of like this romantic idea of the artist as, as having to have complete freedom, mm-hmm. and being completely original, and coming and just you know, it's, it's kind of nonsense. But but mm-hmm. it's, um, I love that idea. Of, poet as a finder mm-hmm. rather than a yeah, anyway, this kind yeah. of really yeah. yeah, thanks for teasing that out a bit. Yeah, Barbara. I like how this piece that's written up there right now, this reminds me of an Easter egg hunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, how I think a child would rather run around and look for the golden egg rather than just sit down and Yeah, I like what you said about, yeah, just being like, here's a basket full of Easter eggs. Happy Easter. Like, what? <laughs> how disappointing would that be? <laughs> well, and how much fun, too, that God has in, like, hey, go look behind that tree over there. Yeah. Right. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. <laughs> yeah, Dick. Yeah, I, I struggle to make these 
this whole idea of concrete and and uh, and daily in our government. Mm-hmm. It struck me. I don't have the full quote here because I've thought of it so many times. But it seems to me that to love demands enormous imagination, mm-hmm. reaching out of the imagination. I just think of the little phrase in First Corinthians 13, love endures all things, hopes all things, <coughs> believes all things. To hope and believe all things about suffering is a massive outlay of imagination. Mm-hmm. To believe, yeah. to, to believe and take seriously something that you don't see. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing it because you're, we're called to love people who are not lovely necessarily. Mm-hmm. Maybe who, who sat on us, who've done bad things to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but just the reality of love, um, the, the expectation that we should love, is, is a vast area of, of a, a call for our imaginative involvement. All the people we have around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another point I talked about in another lecture, I talked about um, the, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a call to imaginative work because I, I have to think through what, what, what I want someone to do for me, first mm-hmm. of all, if I was in that position. So I have to imagine myself in a different position than I am and kind of work through, and then would that be the same for this other person? You know, mm-hmm. that whole process is is imaginative work, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think just another big one is just, um, this sounds really negative, but, <laughs> but um, the imaginative work that is required to really, um, believe that each person has dignity as an image bearer of God when they mm-hmm. don't just they're not displaying it mm-hmm. you know or um, to varying degrees uh, and uh, yeah to, to try to see to see that worth and value and dignity as God sees it we're essentially just trying to see <laughs> something that God is aware of that that uh mm-hmm is doubly, it's like looking through two panes of dirty glass, like the, the person themselves is, mm-hmm. is a twisted up image, and I'm also a twisted up image that doesn't want to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, that to me is just a huge um, a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. That, that everybody is of, it's not, it's not that I, I, I deal with terrible people all day, I don't. <laughs> but it, it, it's to it's to uh, Maybe it's that to believe that every person, despite radical differences, is of equal value and dignity before God because of the image. You know, mm-hmm. That's just that to me is a, is the uh, work of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think even just having that. Uh, potential lens, whether you're actually looking through it or not, but saying like, okay, God maybe sees this person differently than I do, definitely sees this person differently than I do. That, I think, is, it can be the seed of something to which, is having something to which more can be given. Because mm-hmm. um, then from there, we can ask God, show, share some of that perspective with me, because I'm not seeing it. 
um, yeah, I think I think that's connected there to that that verse in Matthew. Well, we can definitely stop there. Don't need to keep you all up past your bedtime. Um, thanks all for being here.